Not doing so good. A little, I'm feeling. So when, when you're a pastor and you come to a passage that you've got to preach, and you go, oh, mm, do I really want to preach this? Well, I don't have a choice because I chose to preach through the books of the Bible. So if we skip these four verses, people would notice, <laughs> right? And so uh, I would say as we come to uh, chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 through 4, this is probably the most uh, convicting sermon personally for myself that I've done in a long time. I was with my wife last night and giving her sort of a review of the message because she's not able to be here. She's doing something with her school today with her students. And so, and she said, uh, well, what about you? That doesn't, that doesn't sound like you. And I said, oh, thanks a lot, dear. And so with that before us, I have a choice. I had a choice. I could water this down, what we're going to look at, what I don't think it means, and make it fit me, and I could be okay, uh, but I didn't do that, and so I'm going to be preaching to you and to me this morning uh, from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. So with that introduction, uh, we need to back up to chapter 2 for a second, give us some context. Remember in chapter 2, Paul makes, of Colossians, Paul makes a powerful argument for resisting false teachers, false teachers that are attacking the church. First, he warns the church about their teachings. In verse 8 of chapter 2, Colossians, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental, demonic spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul warns, don't fall prey to these Christless deceitful, empty, demonic philosophies. He then seeks to build up the believer uh, by proclaiming their identity in Christ. Who, this is who you are in Christ, verse 9 and 10. For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Christ is God, come in human form. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. God fully dwells in Christ, and we have been filled in Him. That's pretty awesome. And Paul goes on to expand on that. Verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2. Let me just summarize. He says, We're circumcised in Christ. Our sinful flesh has been removed by Christ. We're baptized in Christ. Our old self is dead, buried with Christ, and we've been raised to a new life in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ. Our, our record of our debt, our sins have been nailed to the cross, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are triumphant in Christ. We share in His victory over the rulers and the authorities, the satanic, demonic forces of this world. Hallelujah. So Paul both warns the Colossians against the false teachers and he affirms their identity in Christ. And then in the final section of chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, he puts those two things together. He does this by de detailing some of the false teachings that they were experiencing in Colossae. And then based on their identity in Christ, that they should not allow these false teachers to divert them from Christ. Look, this is who you are in Christ. Don't fall for this, basically. For example, verses 20 and 21, he writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
based on who you are in Christ, your death in Christ, your old self is no longer with us. Why? As if you were still alive in the world. Why do you act like you're still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So Paul's argument in chapter 2 for resisting false teachers includes a warning against uh, these Christless, demonic teachings that they were seeking to divert people away from Christ with, and an encouragement to believers in our need uh, not to be diverted from Christ because of who we are in Christ. There's a lot of Christ here, right? Jesus is the focal point of this book as well as the whole Bible. So now, that was chapter 2, now we come to chapter 3. Paul makes a transition. He'll continue to remind the Colossians of who they are in Christ, but instead of specifically warning them and us against false teachers, he turns to a positive instruction. And I think it's important, just from the get-go, this is positive instruction. The New Testament, the Old Testament, filled with positive instruction, which, unfortunately, some people term legalism. You know, we talked about legalism. Legalism is not obeying positive instruction. Legalism is believing that by obeying anything, you're saved. This isn't legalism. And it's not earning your salvation. This is uh, instruction given to those who've trusted in Christ already. It's not a, the, the obedience to what we're going to face, what we're going to see in chapter 3 into chapter 4 is not a method for coming to, to know Christ. It's, it's a positive instructions for those who do know Christ. It's instruction that, if obeyed, will help the Colossians grow in their relationship with Christ. He's made it clear that they've been filled in Christ. And now he instructs them and us how to experience that fullness. Do you like I? Is it like I or like me? Do you like me? Me. Do you like me sometimes feel like you're missing something in your walk with Christ? A show of hands. No, just kidding. Like, isn't there more? Shouldn't there be more here? Shouldn't I be experiencing a, a closer relationship with God? Especially if you've been with us. Okay, we had the break for Easter and Palm Sunday, but go back a few weeks. Our identity in Christ especially if I'm truly in Christ, if I'm connected to Christ, shouldn't I be very different from those in the world? Well, yes and no. Those who are in Christ should be very different from those who are in the world. We should be experiencing a close relationship, a walk with God through Christ. But that relationship can be hindered when we ignore the commands, the instruction of God. When we ignore or disobey the clear teaching that we're given. However, if we listen to, take in, obey God's commands, we will be, we will be very different from those in the world. We'll grow in our relationship with Christ. We'll experience fullness in Christ. And to that end, Paul, in Colossians chapter 3 Old chapter 3 and really the beginning of chapter 4, and then the rest of chapter 4 is like final greetings and things, gives us a series of instructions for living life in this world. And as we move through these instructions over the next several weeks, they'll become, uh, we'll see that, they, uh, that he becomes very practical and specific in nature. 
Paul will instruct us in how to deal with our sin. He'll, he'll tell us how to conduct ourselves in this world in, and in the church. How to relate to one another here and how to relate to the world out there. He'll tell us how we can relate to one another as husbands and wives, children, parents, masters and servants, or in our context, employers, employees, people you're called to submit to in this world. And all of that's to come. But today... In the first four verses of chapter 3, Paul lays uh, what I believe is the foundation. He provides us with really one basic command, one basic instruction, one thing we must do if we're to experience fullness in Christ. One very difficult thing that we must do. I liked, what was the song we just sang at the end? Uh, Was that a little chorus, Liam? By grace... By grace alone. Let me tell you, it's by grace alone that any of us will be able to obey what's coming. Let me begin by reading these first four verses of chapter 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, uh, do you see the command? I underlined it for you. You got it? There are two parts relating to the same thing. For emphasis, Paul, I think Paul says it in two different ways. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. Or stated together, the title of the message today, Pursue What's Above. As we'll see, this is difficult for us to obey, and Paul understands that. But if you noticed, as you read through these verses, Paul includes more than the command. He also gives us, and this is our first point, the motivation for pursuing what's above. We need motivation, right? If you were to ask Paul, why should we do what you, or why should we do what God says? Why should we pursue the things that are above, specifically? Paul wouldn't say uh, what parents, my parents are over there, so I won't comment on me, what parents often say to children when asked why, Uh, because I said so. Instead, he seeks to motivate obedience. They still do that. I'm, I'm almost 60, and why did you, dad? And he says, because I said, no, he doesn't really. He seeks to motivate obedience, Paul, by explaining the reasons for his command. First, he says, pursue what's above because of who you are in Christ. Specifically, Paul points to the death and resurrection, our death and resurrection with Christ. Prior to the command, at the beginning of verse 1, he writes, if then, or since, it's really uh, since, since you have been raised with Christ... Then in the rest of verses 1 and 2, he gives the command to seek and set your minds on things that are above. And then following the command, in verse 3, he writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So our obedience to the command to pursue what's above is based on the fact that in Christ we have died and were resurrected. Now this is a reminder of what Paul already wrote about. 
the believer's identity in Christ in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm just going to read verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God. Several weeks ago, we went over our, our baptism, the, the symbol of our death and our resurrection with Christ. So we won't go into detail here, but what I want us to remember, what we need to think about, what Paul repeats to motivate our obedience is this, is that when we come to Christ, when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, when we submit to His reign and rule in our lives, we actually die. Our old self dies and is buried. Our new self is then raised with Christ. We are, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again. We, be, we become, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, new creatures in Christ. A new creature who's raised with Christ and therefore will spend eternity with God. That's who we are if we're in Christ. Not to get a, ahead of ourselves. We haven't really talked about what the above is, but, uh, but to spend eternity above. We died to our old self, our old earthly self, our life, and we were raised with Christ. So of course, duh, we should focus on what's above, where Christ is, and, we're, and where we are part of in Christ, and where we will one day fully be, the above. We see this as well when Paul writes, not only did you die and rise again in Christ, but your life is now, not going to be, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Where's Christ right now? Heaven. He's here too, right? I mean, it's kind of mysterious. Christ is with us always. The Spirit of God, Christ, I mean, the Trinity, the mystery there. But Christ is ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's with God. He is God. Or as Paul says, He is in God. And where are we right now? Well, if you don't know, you're right here in this church. But also, in a mysterious way, just like Christ is with us and at the right hand of the Father, we are with here. But in a mysterious way, our lives are hidden with Christ in God now. Now, what does that mean? Well, that word hidden is the Greek uh, crypto, not digital currency, or Superman's dog. It, it means to conceal. It's actually spelled with a K, like crypto the dog. I don't know. Anyway. But it's more uh, where we get our word cryptic. Uh, it means conceal, to hide. That's why I translated hidden here. This certainly convey, conveys the mystery uh, being both on earth and being with God in Christ. It's cryptic, it's hidden, it's concealed. But it also conveys something else. Think about it this way. Uh, we hide things for at least two reasons. First, so others can't see them or find them. How many of you here were, la were here last week? Uh, show of hands? No, just kidding. Uh, uh, did, did anybody notice that I had a beard? It wasn't so that I would look ruggedly handsome, which I did, of course. But uh, it was to hide a cold sore I had on my lip. That was the whole purpose of the beard. You thought, 
I was just going crazy, growing beards. But it was just to hide, to hide something on my uh, otherwise beautiful face. <laughs> just kidding. But we, so we hide things to just so others can't see them. And we also hide things to keep them safe and secure. Like I have a place in my house where I keep important documents. They're under lock and key, hidden away to keep them safe and secure. And it's the second sense of hidden, safety and security, that Paul is using. As Christians, we are mysteriously in, in God, safe and secure with Christ in God. As Jesus said about his sheep in John 10, 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is the where you want to be. You want to be in the Father's hand. You want to be with Christ in God. Once the Father gives us to Christ by, by His power and ability, by His grace and love and mercy, then no one, no false teacher, no demonic power, can remove us from the Father's hand. We're hidden. We're safe. Secure with Christ in God. Which means we're safe and secure uh, uh, not on earth. We could, just so we are clear on this, we could at any time physically die. We could physically lose our health. We could lose our wealth. But we're safe and secure in the above. Therefore, it would be foolish to pursue the things of this earth which are not safe and secure, and it would be wise to pursue what's above, where we're hidden, safe and secure, with Christ in God. So we pursue what is above because of who we are in Christ. We died in Christ, we were raised with Christ, and we're hidden with Christ in God. But we also pursue uh, what's above because of who we will be in Christ. Our future is described in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice first that Paul says that Christ is your life. Do you believe that? Christ is your life. You're not your life. Your spouse isn't your life. Christ is your life. And this isn't a command. Uh, make Christ your life. But a statement of fact. For the Christian... Christ is our life. Whether we always acknowledge it, whether we always live that way or not, we are in Christ. Our life does not belong to ourselves. We are bought with a price, as Paul says to the Corinthians. And as we've seen, right now our lives are hidden, safe and secure, with Christ in God. But when He is revealed at His coming, in His glorious body, we too will be be revealed because we will be transformed. We will have, uh, in fact, bodies like His. Paul describes this in, in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. This is another uh, a motivation for what we're talking about here. We're not citizens of this earth. We're citizens of the above, of heaven. And from it, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. When Christ appears, when Christ returns, we will be transformed. 
will be fully revealed. Uh, who we are, sort of mysterious, hidden, now, fully revealed. What a spectacular, eternal life awaits us. A new glorious body, eternity in the presence of the Lord. Therefore, why would we pursue the lowly, temporal, earthly, material things when we're destined for glory in the presence of God for all eternity? Why would we be so foolish as to pursue the things below and not the things above? That's it. That's Paul's reasoning. His motivation for our obedience to the instruction to seek and set our minds on the things that are above. Now we turn to the command itself. The meaning of pursuing what's above. Verses 1 and 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, as I mentioned, there are two aspects to this uh, command, both seeking and setting your minds on the things that are above. And I boil it down to one word, pursue. I think that's accurate. But let's, make, uh, let's expand on that a little bit. Let's make sure we understand what it means to seek and set our minds on something, on anything really, and then we'll talk about the above, I want us to notice that both seeking and setting are action words. They're verbs. These are things we are actively to engage in. These are decisions of the will. We decide to seek and to set. We decide what to seek and what to set our minds on. The word seek is the Greek zeteo. It means to actively go after to desire it, to want it, to seek it out, to pursue it. Like when my son, age three or so, disappeared in Walmart. I began to actively seek him out. I pursued him with all my heart till I found him. And the phrase, set your minds on, is one Greek word, phroneo. It means uh, to think about to direct one's mind to something, to seek, pursue with the mind. Like when you face a difficult problem, something you can't get out of your mind, you've got to solve this problem. You set your mind on solving that dilemma. I remember when I was a computer programmer, uh, I would often at the end of the day, I, I can't figure out, there's a bug or something in the software and I can't figure it out. And so I'll, I go home and, and uh, instead of opening my Bible and setting my thing, mind on things above, I'm, my mind is continually, what's the problem there? What's the problem? Set my mind on that. And in the morning I go, oh, it's the morning. I, that's easy. I figure it out. So also it should be noted that both uh, verbs, zeteo and phroneo, to set your minds on, to seek, to set your minds on, are in the, you ready for the the. Some, some grammar here. The present imperative tense. You don't have to know that. Here's what, here's what it means. Which means a continuous, ongoing effort is required. So what Paul is saying is we are to actively, continually, persistently engage in pursuing the things that are above. It's not a one-time deal. It's a way of life. Now, what does that kind of persistence look like? Well, we, we see it in our world. Let me, let me just illustrate it with a different kind of pursuit of things that are above. The pursuit of the planet 
quote-unquote, Pluto. After astronomers, I don't know, is Pluto a, did they ever make it a planet again? Oh, they did. Is it back to being a planet? You know what? It doesn't matter. And that's going to be the point here. Uh, after, but after astronomers calculated a probable orbit of a suspected heavenly body, astronomer Clyde Tombaugh took up the search in March of 1929, almost 100 years ago. Time magazine recorded the investigation. He examined scores of telescopic photographs, each showing tens of thousands of star images in pairs under a dual microscope. It often took three days to scan a single pair. It was exhausting, quote, eye-cracking work, and in his own words, brutal and tedious. And it went on for months. Star by star, he examined 20 million images. Then on February 18th, 1930, as he was blinking at a pair of photographs in the constellation Gemini, he says, I suddenly came upon the image of Pluto. It was the most dramatic astro astronomic discovery in nearly a hundred years. Clyde Tombaugh actively, consistently, persistently, passionately engaged in pursuing a thing that was above. And he found Pluto which, as far as I know, isn't even a planet anymore. I don't know. I use this story to not only illustrate that seeking and setting one's mind on something, what it looks like, but to show that even when we find what we're seeking, our earthly pursuits, in the long run, make no real difference. I mean, you might find it fascinating, Pluto, but does Pluto's existence or non-existence whether it's a planet or not, really impact your life in any way, shape, or form? I don't know. Not mine. But that's not the case when we continually, persistently seek and set our minds on the things that are above that Paul's talking about. And to do that, we need to understand what are these things that are above? What they are. I think we, we've got a little hint, some we got some understanding, but I just want to be clear. Paul here in his command gives us some clues. First, he says uh, that they are above, right? And the word above in the Greek means above, up, upwards. And in Scripture, the heavenly realms where God dwells is pictured as above. As David wrote in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast, his steadfast love toward those who fear him. It's all throughout Scripture. The heavens are above. Whether they, I mean, that's where they're pictured. I don't know how far out they go. I don't know another dimension. I don't know how that all works. But above is talking about the heavenly realm. So above both refers to the heavenly. So above refers to the heavenly realm where God dwells, and that's confirmed here. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But the focus is not on the general things of heaven. It's not, it's not even a focus on going to heaven or the streets of gold of heaven, you know, the heavenly realm, but specifically where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is a picture of God's kingdom, his authority, his rule and reign over the world and, and, and over our lives. I think Paul is saying the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first 
pursue first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The things that are above are the things of God, are His kingdom, His plans, His purposes, His rule, His reign, His righteousness, His holiness, His glory. Or put simply, seeking the things that are above is another way of saying, pursue God. Set your minds on God. Live for God. Know His will and ways, His character, His attributes. Know Him personally as a child knows a father. Seek and set your minds on the things of God. And this is contrasted with the things that are on earth. Set your minds on the things that are not Uh, are above, not, underline not, on things that are on earth. Okay, this is where it gets tough. This is so important for us to understand and so difficult for me, and I'm guessing some of you, to obey. Paul's not just saying, okay, uh, add the things of God to your vast list of things to pursue. He's saying, pursue the things of God, not the things of this earth. Now, what are the things of this earth? This is where it gets really tough. Difficult question. And you might not like my answer. That's okay. No, it's really not. You have to like my answer. No. But the earth is filled with things, right? Some which we would term good, good things. Some bad. In fact, in verse 5 which we'll look at next week, Paul points out some of the bad things. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, if we could just limit it to that, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm okay. Right? But I don't think verse 2, in verse 2, Paul is limiting the things that are on earth to just sinful things. Sinful things that are in you. He's contrasting the things on earth with the things that are above. The things of God. Therefore, the things that are on earth are the things that are not the things above. The things that are not, the things that would be earthly. The things that would be temporal. These include material possessions. Houses and cars and bank accounts, etc. Immaterial things as well. Education. Honors, position, achievement. And to a certain extent, I think it also includes earthly relationships. I think it also includes activities we engage in. We're going to talk more about some of those activities in our, in our final point this morning. Now this is not to say that we can't or shouldn't get educated, get married, find a job, have kids, work hard, achieve advancement at our job, care for ourselves and our family, we should engage in these things, the things of life. Paul's not suggesting that Christians withdraw from this world. He's not saying that we can't pursue advancement, prominence, achievement, taken to to absurdity. There'd never be a Christian surgeon or a chef or a CEO, the difference is that the Christian is no longer to see these things, these things of earth, as their, his purpose, 
his ultimate purpose. Earthly things, even a spouse, a child, a grandchild, are not to be our ultimate purpose. I really had to deal with this with the grandchildren because they're pretty cute, you know. I want, I want that. That is they or any earthly thing, material or immaterial, is not to be what we persistently and continually seek and set our minds on. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. And in fact, I think Jesus is saying, seek the kingdom of God and I'm going to take care of the rest. Whatever you're to be and do in this world, seek the kingdom of God first and foremost. But again, this is so hard for us. We're so focused on the earthly. We're so focused on this temporal life. And, and I understand that. I, it's true for me. This is where I live. This is all I've been. I, I personally, I don't know about you, I've never been to heaven. You know, I believe God and I've experienced God in my life, but he's invisible to me. So it's so hard for us to obey this, to, to take our eyes off the things of this world, on our, take our eyes off our families, our health, our wealth, our comfort, our security. And because of this, uh, we lose focus on what's a far greater uh, triple the far, far, far greater importance. That is the things that are above, the things of God. Really, Jesus makes it very clear. Matthew 6, when he speaks about our treasures. What are your treasures? He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're so prone to seek, seek out, to set our minds on what we believe to be earthly treasures. We live not for eternal things, the things of God, but for the temporal things of this, this world. We've all seen the bumper sticker or heard the saying, He who has the most toys when he dies wins. For many, this is a, their philosophy of life. And sadly, many in the church fall prey to this same kind of thinking and living. False theologies seek to promote as God's will our health and wealth and success and material blessing. God's got it. I can have it. And by faith, I'm going to get it. But Paul is very clear. We're to pursue, seek, set our minds on the things that are above the things of God, the pl His plans, His purposes, His character, His will, Him. Not, He didn't just stop there. He added that thing and it really bugs me. Not the things of this earth. So we've seen the motivation and the meaning of the command to pursue what's above. But the question comes, so how do I do that? How do I pursue what's above? Third point, the method for pursuing what's above. Beginning in verse 5, Paul will begin giving instructions that I think are designed to help us pursue what's above. And we'll cover these instructions over the next several weeks. But today, I want to introduce us to, uh, or remind us of, some, this will be 
a reminder, some will, this might be new to. I want to remind us, introduce us to a number of methods, actions, that Christians throughout history have persistently engaged in that they might pursue what's above. Traditionally, these methods are called spiritual disciplines. Put into the context of uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, spiritual disciplines are actions, disciplines we engage in for the purpose of pursuing the spiritual, the things above, the things of God and God himself. Now, I'll I'll only touch briefly on each discipline, and I'll uh, not cover every possible discipline. I'm only going to point out five, and I'm going to do it briefly. But at the end of your notes, if if you have some notes, and if you don't, you might want to take them out, you'll find I've listed a number of books, all of which I believe will help you pursue what's above. And one of them is titled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. It's by a man named Donald Whitney. He's written a number of books. He is great. This is a great book. I'd recommend it to all. I use it uh, in marriage counseling, premarital counseling. You know, some guys want to talk about, uh, you know, don't, do you guys know which way to turn the toilet paper so you don't fight over it? Or who's, how do you squeeze the toothpaste? Not interested in that. I'm interested, are the couple following Jesus? And the Spiritual Disciplines book is what I use to help them in that. Because they can get over the toothpaste, but they can't get over when one of them doesn't really love Jesus. Okay? Great book. It speaks in detail about the things we'll cover briefly today. I'm just going to wet your whistle and encourage you to engage in these spiritual disciplines. So let me briefly mention five. First, and really foundational to our pursuit of what's above, is Bible intake. Paul wrote to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God, in His great wisdom, has chosen to reveal Himself... His will, His ways, His purposes, His plans, uh, who we are in a book. Really a series of 66 books written over a period of 1,400 years by lots of different kinds of guys. And it's in these books, the Bible, that is really one cohesive unity that we find what's above. We find revealed in the pages of the Bible who God is, His attributes, His nature, His will, His purposes. Therefore, any pursuit of God must be grounded in His Word. Some people will say they're pursuing God, and they're really pursuing something of their own conjuring. Your pursuit of God has to be the pursuit of the God in the Bible, or you're pursuing something different. Therefore, seeking and setting our minds on the things that are above will involve spending time Reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on, hearing Scripture preached. Ask yourself, how much time do I spend pursuing what's above in the Word of God? Side note, related to Bible intake, I'd add reading Scripture-saturated books. And by that, I mean books that are filled with Scripture, really explaining to us uh, giving us a topic and going through Scripture and showing it to us. And I, as I mentioned, I've included a list of several of these Scripture-saturated books that I, I've found super helpful. I mean, not coincidentally, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. 
This, is the, the, this list is on the end of your notes. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Desiring God by John Piper. Astonished by God by John Piper. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Spiritual Disciplines. We talked about that one. Prayer. Experiencing awe and intimacy with God. I actually slept last night in a hotel in Ontario. And so I had a pile of books set out to bring to, at my house that I forgot to bring. So next week I'll have those. Not all of these, but I have a couple of these if you want to borrow them or some I can give you. So, Bible intake. And that takes us to our second method, uh, which the final book on prayer takes us to the second method of, of, or spiritual discipline, which is prayer. If Bible intake is the foundation for pursuing what's above, prayer is the driving force behind our pursuit. Prayer is not only a time when we let our requests be made known to God, which of course it is, it, it should be. It's also a conscious effort to enter the presence of God. Prayer connects us to God. In fact, prayer is the pursuit of God. As the author of Hebrews makes clear, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God. Come to God through His Word, through prayer, in fact, as we've talked about before, maybe the best way to draw near to God in prayer is to pray His Word. Combine the two. And maybe the first thing we should pray every morning as our feet hit the floor is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Father, help me this day to seek and set my minds on the things that are above. Keep me from pursuing the things of this earth and empower me to pursue You. To always seek first the kingdom of God. Amen. So ask yourself, how much time do you spend pursuing what's above through prayer? And then third, pursue what's above through worship. Like prayer or even as part of prayer, worship uh, brings us into the presence of God. As we honor and praise and glorify God through song, through study, through obedience, through His Word... Our hearts and minds are drawn away from the things of this earth and uh, are set on the things above. As the song so poignantly says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full, full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now we can and should worship individually. I think worship is more than just uh, getting on your knees. You know, you worship as a way of life. Your obedience to God is worship to God. But I want to just speak uh, specifically about uh, worship as a church. This is, why church. this is one of the reasons why church attendance is so important. We are called to pursue what's above through worship, prayer, Bible intake, both as individuals and as a church. So ask yourself, how much time do I spend pursuing what's above through worship? And then fourth, pursue what's above through evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism means sharing your faith, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, really sharing what's above with those who've yet to trust in Christ. And discipleship involves helping those who come to Christ grow in their faith. And when we engage in these activities, we're pursuing what's above. We're pursuing the things of God. We're pursuing His plans. We're pursuing His purpose. We're engaging in His mission to seek and to save the lost. 
For when we become a new creature in Christ, we're given the responsibility of representing Christ in the world, of being His witness, of proclaiming the truth of who He is and what He's done to a lost world. Or in, in a lost world. I think uh, uh, Ash is going to experience this on maybe some new, some new ways as he heads out to South Asia, as he spends his time evangelism and discipling. And I find it interesting and important that when Jesus promises that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come upon us, dwell within us, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and when he promises that he himself will be with us always, both of those are in the context of him telling us to evangelize and make disciples. This connection with God comes as we obey Him. You want to experience more of God, more of His power in your life, start telling people about Jesus. I would say from personal experience, it's when we engage in evangelism and discipleship that our hearts and minds are supernaturally set on the things that are above. For me, although uh, along with preaching, it's when I engage, when I tell people about Jesus, when I seek to help people grow in their faith, that I experience the things that are above. I experience God working in and through me. So ask yourself, how much time do I spend pursuing what's above through evangelism and discipleship? And then finally, fifth, I mean, there are other methods. Like I said, these are just the five I've chosen to highlight today. Pursue what's above through giving. Remember, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you giving of your time? We're going to talk more about time in a minute. Your talents, what you can do, your resources, financial and others, in such a way that it shows where your, your treasure and therefore your heart is set on the things that are above. Or does the way you use what God has given you, remember it's His, you are only a steward of it, do you use what God has given you does it end up being used or even wasted on the things of this earth? We must hold loosely to the things below, our possessions, our positions. Remember the parable of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus told him to sell all he had, and the man went away uh, pretty bummed out. He was sorrowful. The truth is, as 21st century Americans, most, every one of us, is that rich young ruler. Every one of us has incredible wealth compared to the rest of the world, more things than we know what to do with. Because of our possessions, though, it's difficult to set our minds on the things that are above. And the remedy for this is certainly not to selfishly hoard, but to become a giving, generous person. To use what God has given you for His purposes, for the things that are above. Ask yourself, how am I giving of my time, my talents, my resources to pursue what's above? So that's that. We've seen the motivation for, the meaning of pursuing what's above, and we've seen some methods that we can use to pursue what's above. And, and again, I realize that's just a highlighting, that, that last part especially. I hope it's encouraging you to, to seek more of what it means to, 
to be disciplined spiritually, to pursue what's above. But I, I want to conclude with a final challenge. But we're running out of time, so I won't. No, I can't. I can't. Here we go. It's only a couple minutes. I want, to see, I want to get a little more specific about the contrast Paul draws between things that are above and things that are on earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We talked about this already, but, we, but as we close, I want us to consider the fact that one of the things this points out is that our minds and our activities are limited. There's only so much we can seek and set our minds on. And Paul is calling us to make some difficult choices. What will you pursue? What will you seek? What will you set your minds on? Because when you pursue the things that are on earth, you are, by definition, not pursuing the things that are above. At any given moment, you're pursuing one or the other. And it all comes down to time. Where, how are you spending your time? How am I spending my time? And so my challenge to you, to me, is to take some time and evaluate your use of time. If, you, if you're unsure, I'm talking about time. Maybe even take out a piece of paper. Not now, when you get home. Divide it in two. Right across the top of one side, things that are above, and on the other, things that are of this earth. And then jot down where you're spending your, and I'm going to say free time. Okay, I'm going to give us a break here. And by free time, I mean time outside your job. Things that you're required to do for whatever reason, whether it's in, in a workplace or in your own home. Our use of free time, and just let me say this, sometimes uh, we make things that could be free time, not free time, but that I'll leave up to you. Our use of free time, more than anything else, reveals what we're pursuing. How much time are you spending in Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, discipleship, giving, and other spiritual disciplines? Things that help you to draw near to God as He draws near to you, compared to the amount of time you're spending watching TV, surfing the net, playing games on your phone, your tablet, your computer, posting and reading your social media, playing golf, tennis, exercising, shopping, reading non-Bible-saturated uh, books, working on your house or your garden. The list could go on. I'm going to stop there. There are plenty of other things that are on earth, things of this earth, that we use our time for. And just to be clear, I'm not saying all these things are bad. Some definitely are. I'll leave that to you to decide which is which. My wife, wanted, when I talked to her about it, she wanted to make sure I understood that exercising wasn't bad. I go, I get it, honey. <laughs> but others would be considered, maybe even most of this list, would be considered neutral or even good, good for you. And some, like exercising, could be combined with worship or listening to the Bible and, or playing golf with a non-Christian could be combined with evangelism. Or, or maybe you're playing, with your, playing golf with your disciple and you're discipling them as you tee off. I don't know. 
My point isn't to say never do any of these things. My point is that I think Paul's point, what I think Paul's point is, is that you and I have a limited capacity. We have limited minds. We have limited time. And the question comes, where will you spend your time? What will you pursue? Because if you pursue the things of the earth over the things of God, and I'm not God in your life, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I think you need to go to God, and, you need, and I need to go to God and the Holy Spirit and say, okay, I'm laying this out before you. Here's my time. Here's what I do. Where, where do you want me to change it? Because if you are pursuing the things of this earth over the things of God, then uh, let me take it back to how we began. You will continue, and this is how you know, here's a, here's a clue, this is how you know if, if, if you're not doing the pursuit of the things of God, because you will continue to feel like you're missing something in your walk with Christ, because uh, you are, I am. You will not experience a closer, closer relationship with God because how you spend your time says you really don't want to. But if you can begin to change what you are, what or who you are pursuing, if you'll choose to use your time, your mind to pursue the things of God, then I promise, based on the Word of God and some limited experience, you will experience fullness in Christ and joy in your relationship with the Lord. If that's what you want, I mean, if that's not what you want, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I do, but we're really late here, and so I'm going to stop. But if that's what you want, then you really need to begin uh, focusing on some of those methods of pursuing God, pursuing the things that are above. Amen? Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray for myself, first and foremost, and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would speak to us. Lord, that if the Holy Spirit is convicting us in any way, shape, or form, Father, we would listen to that. We would not squelch it. We would hear it. We would do something about it. We would obey it. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in how we spend our time. Or that you would give us the ability to evaluate clearly how we are, how we are feeling about our relationship with you. And that would even drive us uh, to spiritual disciplines, to ways of, 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 of coming into your presence, of growing in our faith. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Yay. Amen. It's <laughs> good stuff. Well, if you want to stand with me one last time as we uh, close with our last song in worship here.